0: Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon.
1: Today's scripture is from Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The word of God for the people of God. I
0: spent some time this weekend in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, My family went up there for a camping trip, and as is pretty typical of us when we go anywhere for a camping trip, we realized that we needed to go to Walmart as soon as we made it to town to pick up a few things we'd forgotten. Well, as I was shopping in Walmart, I realized there were an awful lot of students there wearing their App State uh, regalia and shopping for the things they needed for their dorm room. I had forgotten it's back to school season for our university students and teachers. Anybody have a guess uh, what the most popular college course ever is? If you attended Passport Youth Camp this summer, you're not allowed to answer the question, by the way. Anybody? Most popular college course ever offered. Popularity, of course, is uh, subjective, but in this case, it's measured by the total uh, cumulative number of enrollments. Think about your college experience. Which auditoriums had the most space? Which ones got the best rooms? Which topics filled all the seats? Which professors were the most sought after? Was it chemistry? No, (laughs) I didn't take college chemistry, so I don't know. Was it computer science or math? No. Well, I went to a small liberal arts college in South Carolina. I majored in sociology and French, so none of my classes were among the most popular courses ever taken. Uh, but in my discipline, the most popular class was called deviant behavior. It always filled up with upperclassmen. Usually had a waiting list. As popular as it was, though, it doesn't even come close to the most popular class ever offered. You want to know what it is? I'll give you a hint. It's offered at Yale University. Yale's over 300 years old, so it's got a long history, but the most popular course that was ever offered at Yale, it's not one that's been around forever. It's not English literature, it's not biology 101. Y'all, it didn't even show up on the course list until 2018. It isn't even part of the core curriculum, It's an elective. Yet its in-person offerings fill up every single time it is offered. And because of its wild popularity, the class is now not only offered to Yale's student body, but it's also available online through a portal called Coursera, a portal I didn't even know existed. But apparently, you can take the same class Yale students take for free. And you can pay a small fee if you'd like to turn in your assignments and get feedback from the professors. The class has only been around for six years now, but it boasts, get ready, over 3.7 million enrollments. You ready to know what it is? I see you, cat. The official title is called The Science of Well-Being, but it's more commonly known as The Happiness Course. It's taught by psychology professor Dr. Lori Santos who created the course after living in the trenches with the students, is what she would say, which means she ate with them in the dining hall, she had conversations with them, she got to know the students, she likens herself to Dr. McGonigal, for any Harry Potter fans out there, and as she was engaging with the student body, she noticed the kinds of mental health issues that so many of them were experiencing. And these reflected national trends, which most mental health professionals will say are getting worse. And so Dr. Santos created the course called the psychology or psychology and the good life. That was its first name. It was an academic exploration of happiness, which educates and then equips students with behavior exercises to help rewire the brain. All of this, of course, is intended to lead to more happiness and less despair. I guess time will tell. It makes sense, though, now that you know the name, why this class was so popular, especially given the timing. Just think about everything that we have been through since 2018. I heard one of my neighbors say it plainly just last week in a casual conversation about life. We were talking, and she said in the middle of the conversation, You know, I feel like we are all just teetering on the edge of despair. Did you hear that? Teetering on the edge of despair. It's a fragile position the one that we are in. All the things into which we have placed our trust seem to be falling apart. The economy has to be checked and monitored daily so that we can know how to make major life decisions like the timing of retirement and the measure of our ability to give generously like we want to give. The job market, some say, is doing okay unless you live in Raleigh and you're surrounded by tech, employees, but even still, no matter what our field, we cannot be too comfortable or too certain because we know that most most employees, most professionals will not have a linear path with consistent and steady growth culminating with a reliable pension after a long career with the same company. Those days are gone. It doesn't happen anymore, and most of us find ourselves on our own. Even our (laughs) friendships Our friendships feel particularly vulnerable in this moment as life picks up its pace and everything demands our time, leaving little room for self-care, much less meaningful social connection. Or maybe we find ourselves in an opposite situation. Whereas the slower pace of previous years allowed more visits, more phone calls, more cards, more attention, more time with the people we loved, now those people are back to business as usual, leaving us lonely. Whatever our situation, though, it is no wonder that we are all searching for this thing called happiness. You know, these things I listed are just a few of the reasons that we're feeling exhausted and insecure and uncertain. And well, as my neighbor said, these are just a few of the reasons that we find ourselves teetering on the edge of despair. But it is precisely these reasons, and perhaps lists all of your own, that give us an entry point that help us identify with the people in Nehemiah 8, and why their story, their situation, resonates so deeply with ours. Can't you just see yourself right there amongst the crowd who have gathered, regathered, perhaps, to hear scriptures read by the priest, Ezra? or to hear a good word delivered by the governor, Nehemiah. These people, they were weary from years of exile, separation from one another after the destruction of their temple in Jerusalem, and they had just recently been given permission to come on home by Cyrus, the king of Persia. He invited them to come back into their holy city, to come back together, to come back and rebuild their temple And y'all, I don't think we will ever be able to fully imagine what that season of destruction and distance and exile felt like. I mean, I hope we will never have to know that kind of displacement, but we do from time to time experience small glimpses of it. When COVID came and the doors to our church were closed for in-person gatherings, we learned what it meant to worship outside our sanctuary, whether we were outdoors or at home. After a long time, we came back. Here we are. But nothing is quite the same, is it? When children grow up and go away for school or work, they leave home. And when they come back, they are forever changed. Nothing is the same again, is it? When we go through serious illnesses or medical treatments that change our bodies or job loss or divorce or you name the tragedy, the experiences change us forever, making us wholly different than we were before. So we know that when the invitation comes to return home and to rebuild the life that we loved, we don't walk. We run home. And that's exactly what the Hebrew people did when Cyrus invited them back. They returned from all those places of exile, not all the same place, and not everyone at the same time, not everyone the same as they were before because they had all been changed in the season of exile. And as they began to pick back up the pieces of their lives— As they began to rebuild their holy temple, they must have realized that even though they were back home, nothing would ever be the same again. It was a season of grief filled renewal. So by the time Ezra reads from the scrolls of Torah facing the people who had regathered for worship, the people have been working really hard to rebuild their city and the walls and the temple. The text says they have been working for nearly seven months. Not only is that a good long while, seven months, you know, it's long enough for the fatigue and the frustration of it all to set in, but it's also a theological number, seven usually indicating a time of completion or rest and renewal. But here in Nehemiah, we are exhausted. Maybe rest and exhaustion, maybe renewal and frustration are not all that different. The Israelites are a people who seem to be a lot like us, you know, as we teeter on the edge of despair. And gather together searching for a bit of happiness in a a word of hope, looking for a word of joy even. Those who understand the Torah reading immediately bow down in prayer, the scripture tells us, and when the others hear the text interpreted for them, they respond by weeping. Now, nobody knows for certain why the people responded with tears, but Rashi, a great 11th century French rabbi, argued that the people must have wept because they were confronted with how many times they had failed to fulfill the laws of Torah. And other commentators certainly agree with rashi and it makes sense right how many times do we read scripture how many times have we found ourselves in the pews of a church looking for hope and happiness and joy and renewal only to leave feeling guilty for the things that we have done or maybe feeling guilty for the things that we have not been able to do maybe they were weeping for their sins But some commentators find another possible conclusion, another possible reason for why the people wept at the hearing of Scripture. Some commentators find that somehow in the reading of holy words, in the sharing of those ancient holy stories, that the people were not overcome by shame and guilt. Rather, they were overcome by the overwhelming presence of God that met them in that moment. And that maybe, just maybe, the tears that fell from their eyes were a sign of the overwhelming nature of God's overwhelming joy. An outward sign of an inward grace, as my professor Bill Leonard used to say. We know what it's like for tears stream down our faces in moments of sheer happiness, as you heard Pastor April talk about a minute ago with the children. But what if what's happening here was something even different from that? Rather than crying happy tears in moments of joy, what if the experience of the gathered community What about if in the communion of the saints who had long been dispersed, what if then, in the culmination of their reconstruction, at the end of a long day or week or month or seven months, what if there was something more than they could ever have anticipated? Maybe they were surprised by the presence of God that showed up in the form of joy on that day, even in the midst of their fatigue, even in the middle of their exhaustion, their disbelief, and maybe even in the midst of all of their grief. Maybe joy met them there. You know, joy does that sometimes. It shows up in all the wrong places. Joy is, as one theologian writes, an illumination, the ability to see beyond, to something more. And maybe what another theologian says is right, that joy is best experienced in community because joy seeks company. Joy beckons us, come and rejoice with me. And in the company of those who rejoice, the joy of each is fed. Have you ever been surprised by a certain joy that seemed to interrupt your darkest hour? I can remember... When tears fell from my own eyes, the first time that we were back in this space after 18 months of worshiping in our homes or worshiping outdoors, tears of unparalleled joy, joy that wasn't found in any of the usual pursuits toward happiness, joy that wasn't affected by any merit or work of my own, joy that somehow broke through a season of great despair, reminding me and hopefully reminding us that when the people of God come together for worship or study or prayer or for discerning the movement of the Holy Spirit among us, joy can't help but show up because joy longs to be shared. Last fall, some of us gathered together to read a book on joy written by Baylor Professor Angela Gorel, and her work was part of the Ongoing Happiness Project, uh, which is part of the work at Yale. I told you this story back then, but it's such a good story, I decided to tell it again. And besides, I figured after I asked three staff members if they remembered me ever including this story in a sermon, none of them did, and I did a Google search to see if I had written it in a sermon, if I had to go to such lengths, I figured you might not remember either. So as I conclude, I want to offer you this story from Dr. Angela Gorell. As part of her joy research, she was leading a Bible study in a women's prison. The women loved to get together and sing, and it was Angela's least favorite part of the Bible study. It made her feel insecure about her voice. But on this particular night, everything changed. The women were singing this little light of mine with extraordinary passion— and they had a tradition of letting different women kind of add their words in, a uh, solo of sorts, and then the rest of the, the group would call out, all up in this place. And then the rest would sing, I'm going to let it shine. So each woman would offer her own particular place and it would be met with, I'm going to let it shine. On this particular night, gorel says, everyone was out of their seats. They were on their feet, they were jumping, they were dancing, they were singing so loudly that one of the corrections officers came into the room to see what was going on. And as she watched, she was overcome with amazement at what was happening until eventually she joined in. She joined in, clapping her own hands and singing out with her own voice and smiling like never before. Joy gathers Gorel writes, As the women sang, their mourning, their grief turned into joy. Their despair turned into praise. Their song became itself an act of resistance to all the forms of death that they had experienced and continued to experience in their lives. Gorel writes, Our singing turned into embodied opposition to our fear our anger, and our profound loss. Our joyful noise opposed the imprisonment of bodies, minds, and hearts. Suddenly, we were rejoicing in what ought to be. Not what was, but what ought to be. Their dancing, jumping, clapping, and singing together pushed back against the voices, telling these women that they were alone, telling these women that they were worthless, telling these women that there was no hope. It was healing joy. And in the very act of gathering, of committing to rejoice and to recognize what was good and true, as the women declared their God-given meaning and dignity, they were participating In the joy of God. In the very act of gathering, they participated in the joy of God, a joy that had nothing to do with material gain. A joy that had nothing to do with personal achievement or circumstance, joy rather that was found deep in the heart of God, expressed and experienced in the communion of saints, gathered together to read holy words, to sing holy songs, and to share their holy stories. Joy gathers. Maybe some of you are among the 3.7 million people who have signed up and taken the happiness course. Or maybe you feel like you're so close, teetering on the edge of despair, that you'll try anything. And so you've bookmarked the page already on your phones and you're gonna register for the class after the church conference today. Well, don't let me stand in the way of you and higher education. I'm sure there's a lot to be gained from the happiness course. But I also believe that as people of faith, we already know, at least in part, as Paul says, that the secret to happiness and the good life, the path toward wholeness and a life worth living, begins with a life deeply rooted in the heart of God shown to us in the way of Jesus. And when we lose touch with that truth, all we have to do is this, gather together as the church, for where the body of Christ gathers, where holy words are spoken, where holy songs are sung, and where holy stories are shared, joy is sure to follow. May it be so. Amen.